You're listening to From the Inside Out, a podcast series from USA Learning Lab. International development is a complex process, and we don't always get it right. But here at USA Learning Lab, we believe that we all have a role in improving organizational effectiveness and ultimately achieving better development outcomes. Our goal for this series is to empower USAID staff and partners to change the way they work. So we're sharing research and practical tips on how you can collaborate, learn, and adapt to help USAID achieve better development outcomes. In this episode, we'll talk about the key ingredients in a learning culture. First, we'll discuss what we mean by a learning culture. Next, we'll look at research that examined the relationship between CLA and measures of staff satisfaction and empowerment at USAID. In our third segment, we'll talk about a successful staff empowerment initiative at a USAID mission. I'm Amy Leo, and with me here in the studio are my co-hosts, Stacy Young, CLA Team Lead, and Ian Lathrop, Communications Manager on the USAID Learn contract. Stacy, how do you define a learning culture? A learning culture is a place where individuals and teams are supported in being able to continuously learn and improve their work, rather than being called upon to demonstrate that we already know everything or we have all the answers. So really looking at learning as an ongoing process and at continuous improvement that is a good thing, as opposed to being seen as an indication that you didn't know what you were doing at the outset. Ian, what does our research say about the key ingredients in a learning culture? Google has actually done a lot of work around this with their project Aristotle. They wanted to know why teams were excelling and others were left behind. So they compiled a team of experts internally to look at what made teams super successful and what could be done to kind of replicate that. Unfortunately, it turns out there's no clear pattern of characteristics for the ultimate dream team. They interviewed over 200 people and analyzed over 250 team attributes, and they were not really able to pinpoint what exactly made the supreme team. But there are five key characteristics of a good culture or good team dynamic that really lend itself to to what um, we're talking about here. One is dependability. Um, Team members do what you need them to do, and you can rely on them. The other is structure and clarity. They have Uh, goals that are clearly set and they're willing to work toward those they have a purpose or a meaning they're there for a certain reason they believe that their work has an impact of some kind that uh, similar to what we're doing here in the development space you know we're all working towards something but I think the closest alignment with a learning culture is this last point that they found which is um, psychological safety which ties into what um, Amy Edmondson has done research on. She's a professor at Harvard Business School and defines psychological safety as a shared belief held by members of a team that the team is safe for interpersonal risk-taking. So it kind of describes a team climate characterized by interpersonal trust and mutual respect in which people are comfortable being themselves. And when they are comfortable being themselves, demonstrating what they do know and then taking risks and experimenting and say, you know, this is not working like we thought it would. We need to make a change. Instead of just being directed to do something and feeling like they're not empowered. When they are feeling psychologically safe, um, they're more willing to kind of go along with the flow or to take a big risk. Taking risks, that. challenging the status quo, that kind of thing. Challenging the status quo. There's no, f- they're n- they don't fear shame or um, 
reprimand from their superiors or from their coworkers. They are comfortable in in sharing new ideas and kind of trying to improve the work of the team itself. And they're not afraid to fail. No, mm -hmm. definitely not afraid to fail. I would say that they are pro failure. <laughs> um, you hear a lot about like fail fests and failing failing fast. Um, so it's like it's best to just throw everything you've got fail quickly so that you can quickly adapt and change so that you're not spending all of your time going down the wrong path. Mm -hmm. We talk a lot about the term failure and um, uh, uh, the importance of learning being the flip side of that, really, if we're, if we're going to get it, what, what we intend. But yeah, I think that we've all experienced that, haven't we? We've all, either ourselves or uh, witnessed among our colleagues, the toll it can take on somebody when they feel like they have to spend a lot of time uh, protecting themselves from what they perceive as unfair criticism when they could be spending that time working together with their colleagues to figure out what are we seeing here? What can we learn from it? Is there something that we should do differently? And if so, what is that and how? It's a, it's a level of comfort, being comfortable with a level of uncertainty and owning it and saying, we don't know the answers. We need your help leadership really sets the tone and, and places value on those things. Um, and so if, if that's not clear to you, you're not going to put your neck out there. That's right. Yeah. And I also noticed that we're using the term we a lot and that we do that on this team, which is really different from organizational contexts in which people feel on the spot as individuals to either come up with the right answer or to have to justify something. When we feel like we're in it together it's a lot easier to say hey I don't understand this but you as a member of my team with different attributes with different skills with different experience maybe you can help me figure this out we can put our knowledge together a lot of organizations pay lip service to the notion that the team is stronger than the individual but then in the way that they operate they don't really support that Stacey, I know that you've been doing a lot of thinking about the evidence base for collaborating, learning, and adapting, and that part of that has been an analysis of USAID's FEVS data. Can you start off by just telling us what FEVS is? We have so many acronyms in this alphabet soup of USAID. So first of all, what does FEVS stand for? And then can you tell us a little bit about how the FEVS relate to CLA? Sure. So FEVS, F-E-V-S, is the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey, and it's a survey. It's, it's government-wide. It's not just USAID. So government agencies annually distribute this survey to their employees. Staff have a chance to answer a wide range of questions about their experience working for their particular unit, their broader agency, and so on. The reason that we got interested in it as part of the evidence base for CLA work stream is that we noticed that some of the questions on the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey were similar to some of the things that we emphasize in the collaborating, learning, and adapting framework. So for instance, collaborating, um, but also things like learning and opportunities for professional development, um, knowledge management, uh, staff engagement and empowerment, and so on. And so what we saw was an opportunity to mine some data that were collected broadly across the agency that could help us explore the relationship between our CLA approach, systematic intentional resource approach to collaborating, learning, and adapting, 
and contributions to organizational effectiveness and even to development results. Um, the FEVS survey analysis that we did pointed more in the direction of that first piece, the organizational effectiveness piece. It was a great opportunity to look at the correlation between some of the things that staff were saying at different USAID missions and uh, Washington operating units and the practices that we emphasize in CLA. In her role as new approaches advisor on the USA Learn contract, Alana Shapiro worked with Stacy to conduct this analysis of USAID's FEV scores. Here's Alana describing the research questions for the FEV study. So we had three research questions. The first was, uh, what is the relationship among um, items in the FEVs that are relevant to collaborating, learning, and adapting? The second question was, what is the relationship between CLA and indicators of organizational effectiveness, like employee empowerment, employee engagement, satisfaction, or perceptions of organizational effectiveness? And the third question was about how CLA-related items in the FEVs had changed um, in missions over time. So one of our hypotheses in undertaking the CLA work is that connecting people to their sense of purpose as development workers will help them work more effectively. This is really important in an organization like USAID, which is really strongly mission-driven. Um, th that shows up in the FEVs. It also shows up in other research that's been done on USAID, which is to say that people care a lot about international development. The people who work at USAID really, really want to do good development work. And one of our uh, grounding hypotheses in the CLA work is that this helps them do that, this, uh, that a systematic, intentional, and resourced approach to collaborating, learning, and adapting in USAID programs will help us get to better development results. And one of the paths to those better development results is that engagement piece, helping people to see a way to make their work more effective. And our lived experience working with staff at USAID and implementing partners is when we work with them around how to operationalize collaborating, learning, and adapting in the work that they're doing, they get excited, they get energized, they feel reconnected with that sense of purpose. And so being able to explore that um, experience that we were observing through the FEVS data on uh, more of an objective level with a broader data set was a really great opportunity. So let's hear from Alana about what she found. So we found that all seven of the CLA-related FEVS items for collaborating, learning, and adapting did correlate with each other. In other words, according to mission staff, where managers support collaboration and communication more, there's also higher rates of staff cooperation and knowledge sharing, there's higher rates of staff, staff knowledge and skills necessary to perform their jobs well, and there's stronger support for innovation and adaptation. So we also found that these seven items moved together, or the responses had a lot of shared variants, and that allowed us to develop a robust statistical measure to look at collaborating, learning, and adapting items as one measure, CLA, together. That's really good news, that CLA is definitely correlated to staff satisfaction because we expect that using a CLA approach will improve development results, but it's also great to hear that there's evidence. Yeah, I think that it is, as far as it goes, it's um, very affirming for our approach. 
I say as far as it goes because it's a smallish number of questions that we're working with in the FEVs. I think that um, it's exciting to see that correlation so strong. I think we would like to be able to test the limits of that and see um, at what point the correlation might break down. But yeah, for now, um, being able to use this data set to establish that correlation as far as we can is is uh, very exciting. It ties back a little bit to what we were talking about earlier where staff feel empowered because they work in an environment where this type of behavior is encouraged to be collaborative, to be willing to take risks and ask questions and learn and then make those changes as they go. Uh, it's very validating to see that it's holding true. I also asked Alana about the implications of these findings, and it sounds like USAID still has some work to do in developing a learning culture. Here's what she said. We looked at high and low scores among the FEVs items and noticed two things that that had um, implications. One was among CLA items, there was a need to strengthen adaptive management. So most employees felt personally that um, they collaborated well and they had sufficient knowledge to do a good job. However, significantly fewer felt encouraged by their managers or the general organization to innovate or adapt to improve their work efforts. Second, when we were looking across all the FEBS items, we saw a need to strengthen empowerment. Mission employees have high intrinsic motivation. They believe that their work is really important. They're constantly looking for better ways to do their job. Um, they're willing to put in extra effort to get the job done. However, the lowest rated FEVs items for missions all centered around the empowerment index. Um, this suggests that despite feeling personally motivated, much fewer mission employees believe their talents were used well in the organization. Um, and actually, this corresponds to the enabling conditions side of the CLA framework. So it gives us some information about the need for a holistic approach to CLA. So not only does um, collaborating, learning, and adapting work together, but also there's a need to strengthen that within missions in, it, in creating um, enabling conditions such as um, processes, culture, uh, resources, et cetera, that, make, that allow people to feel more empowered and engaged in their work. Stacy, what's your take on these findings? Is this what you expected to come out of this analysis? One of the ways that this research that Ilana is describing has been really useful to us has been to validate the experience that we're having in the field. So first, um, the piece on adaptive management, what we found through analyzing the FEVS data is the same as what we hear in the field. People say collaborating is pretty good, learning we do pretty well, adapting not so much. Adapting is the hard piece. So the FEVs questions surrounding that were about uh, staff being supported by their managers or by the broader organization to innovate and so on. Um, what we find is that there's another issue going on here, which is that sometimes the nuts and bolts processes of adapting aren't clear or there isn't space or time to clarify those and to implement them. So in other words, um, People may be confronted with knowledge or information that indicates that they're on the wrong path with their programs and that they need to adapt. They may even have information, say, from monitoring data or from an evaluation or from some other knowledge source that 
indicates the direction that they need to go, but the specific process of getting from where you are to where you want to be isn't clear. And oftentimes, the amount of time that staff have to reflect on their program is used up by the time they figure out that they're on the wrong path and have a general sense of where they need to go. There isn't the time and there aren't the built-in processes to actually figure out step by step how do we adapt from where we are to where we need to go. So I think that the that the reasons that surfaced in the FEVs analysis are um, are probably relevant, uh, but they don't tell the whole picture. On the need to strengthen empowerment, again, the the analysis of the FEVs data affirms the investment that we make in that through the collaborating learning and adapting work. The reason that we focus so much on the enabling conditions side of our framework, the culture and processes and resources in our organization, uh, that's affirmed by the, the dynamics that surfaced in the analysis that Ilana is talking about. I was also struck by the fact that it seems like USAID has some work to do in translating the intrinsic motivation of staff to empowerment. And what you're describing, Stacey, is that it's really a structural challenge. It's it's at the agency level that we need to build the enabling conditions and create the processes that allow that adaptation to occur. Yeah, I think in fairness, it's going to be hard for any government bureaucracy to fully empower its staff. Uh, and so I think where we do see empowerment at USAID, it's encouraging. Um, that said, the the range that we see in responses in the FEV survey and also the examples that surface, for example, through the um, CLA case competition that, that show that some staff are quite empowered and demonstrate what's possible when staff are empowered, I think that helps us get a sense of what's possible even within our bureaucratic context. Thinking about what you just mentioned with the the bureaucracy aspect, and you know we are a government agency, we support a government agency, um, and so you can't just say do whatever you want when you need to make a change. But what uh, a lot of work has already been done, and we can continue to amplify this to say, here are some options so that you don't have to just stick with what you've always done. Um, but that's part of our job, supporting. Um, your team, Stacy, is to say, here are all the different different options out there. Or here's a creative way that this team decided to make changes when they realized that something wasn't going right. You know, when you say it's your job as an implementing partner to put in front of us examples of different options or different things that people have done, it's also our job as an agency to not only be open for that, but to create the expectation that that's what will happen in our relationship with each other as we go forward managing the implementation of, of USAID programs. And it really gets at the part of the learning culture at USAID that is supported by now the revised program cycle ADS that, that places a lot of emphasis on adaptability and continuous learning, but then all of the soft skills that we talked about in the last episode around building adaptive teams and all of the other things that, that we've been discussing around that relationship between USAID and our implementing partners. In our next segment, we'll talk about a successful staff empowerment initiative at a USAID mission. 
USAID Uganda's Mission of Leaders. There's a great video about it on YouTube, and I recommend watching the whole thing, but for our purposes, I'll just play some clips. In the one you're about to hear, the former Deputy Mission Director, Mark Messick, introduces the Mission of Leaders initiative. I want to tell you some of the great things that we're doing here in Uganda. We are actually trying to build a mission of leaders. That's right. We believe everyone in this mission has an important leadership role to play for us to be successful. Come on, I'll tell you more about it. In my experience in USAID, we really tend to shortchange ourselves on the, the possibilities and the importance of what we do. And what do I mean by that? I mean, we have big programs that are promoting big changes in the societies we work in. We need our staff to be leaders in those programs and game changers, and in some cases, even to change the rules of the game so we can do things better. Stacy, you've worked closely with the Uganda Mission. Can you tell us what prompted this initiative and share some of the thinking behind it? So the Mission of Leaders program was prompted by the mission leadership recognizing that in order for the missions programs to be as effective as possible, the staff have to be effective. And in order for that to happen, they need to be able to behave in ways that often aren't incentivized in USAID. For instance, by taking risks, by actively surfacing and examining controversial perspectives, by valuing problem solving and learning over appearing to know everything, and letting go of preconceptions in order to adapt and lots of other behaviors that support CLA and support development effectiveness. So approaching this as a leadership issue across the mission meant helping staff build their ability to adopt those behaviors that enable them to lead from where they are. This goes a long way to actually using well the most important resource that we have at USAID, which is the staff who have a strong sense of purpose. Another component of the Mission of Leaders initiative was Insights Discovery Training, and both of our teams, the CLA team and the USAID Learn team, use this tool. Stacy, can you explain what it is and why it's useful? Sure, yeah. So the Insights Discovery tool, it's a psychometric tool. It's not, it's not that different from Myers-Briggs, but it's less static. It also has the advantage of being used not only for increased personal awareness, but also team awareness. And it comes with a lot of coaching on how to use our awareness of our own strengths and others' strengths, our stresses and our styles in different situations, uh, for instance, on good days and bad, to improve communication and collaboration within teams and across teams. So for example, our team often does insights exercises with each other to help us understand each other's communications preferences, each other's work styles, um, and to figure out how we can leverage each other's work styles in situations where one of us might lack something that somebody else has in abundance. Um, we talk a lot about one of our team members leading with yellow, which means that she has a lot of energy. And sometimes we strategically bring her into conversations where we need that energy with somebody else in our hierarchy in order to have our point heard. So Ian, we've used this tool at, on our team, and I'm curious to hear examples of how you found this useful in your interactions with colleagues. One of the things I really like about the Insights tool is how simple it is. I have used this tool with new clients. In our first meeting, I sit down and go through a 
the abridged version that you can find online. And then you have a conversation about what you found. And so you, Amy, may go through the exercise and you say, I'm predominantly red. And, and then we have the list of traits of what a person who leads with red most identifies with. So the red, for example, is one, a person who gets stuff done. So because we've gone through this exercise, I know that that's how you approach your work. And the exercise or the profile will give you uh, things to look for when interacting with a person who leads with that color. We found it really useful in adapting our own communication styles, like you were saying, Ian, to people whose styles are different. So for instance, I have to, in the language of insights, dial down my blueness when I'm interacting with a red because a red does not want all of that detail. <laughs> so we find it really useful and it's a tool that several USAID missions are also using to try to help staff understand better the dynamics that they're experiencing but can't really articulate. I've found it enormously useful in, for instance, being able to sort of depersonalize and better understand dynamics with individuals who I'm working with or dynamics on teams. Being able to give it a name and say, oh, yeah, this is actually a dynamic that is common in teams and it's not because people are being difficult, it's because they, they have different strengths and therefore I can manage it better because I know better what's going on. It helps us retain an appreciative approach to our colleagues, which is so important to that culture of learning. It's so important to that those strong relationships that we were talking about on teams and, and w across teams. Another component of the Mission of Leaders initiative was leadership training, which the entire mission underwent together. Stacy, what's significant about that? Typically, the way it works is that you'll have individuals within an operating unit going for leadership training at different times, which, which makes it hard to support change across a whole office or a whole team or a whole mission. So having leadership training come to the mission and having everybody treated as a leader and skilled as a leader through this training was a really essential aspect of the Mission of Leaders initiative. Here are two mission staff talking about what they got out of the training. The leadership course was great. Uh, it was a journey of self-discovery for me. I was able to realize that there are opportunities that I held back to uh, because I've imposed some limitations or boundaries on myself. So I walked out of the leadership course knowing that the, those boundaries were going to fall and I was going to exert leadership in this mission. I think one of the things that really stood out for me in the leadership course that we took was that uh, a good leader is a follower, that you, you need to motivate your team, you need to have them engaged, you need to have them energized, and if the team has those three E's components going, then they're going to be a highly performing team. And you know, it's called a Mission of Leaders initiative, and you may interpret that as uh, trying to create a an environment where everyone is a leader, as in like a team leader or a supervisor leader, but it really sounds like they're uh, leaders in in their own respective area, technical area, so that they are leading in their respective roles. So if I'm on the HR team, I'm really leading and, and, and doing the best that we can to achieve our objectives there. Or if I'm in finance or if I'm on the health team, um, we're all kind of contributing toward the, the greater good. Um, I just think that's an interesting distinction to make for that. Yeah, I think it's really important, and I see that. I Like, I see 
when people, and I'm sure you do too, when people are leading from where they are in an organization, it means that they are bringing forth insights that haven't necessarily been invited, but they know will be useful. They are spotting opportunities. They're sharing those with the team. They are uh, supporting their colleagues. Um, Just a lot of proactivity, but also not in an individualistic way, but really thinking about how we as a team can function better and how can how can I bring insights to the table that will help other people on the team do their work better. What have been some of the most significant changes as a result of the Mission of Leaders initiative? Yeah, that's a good question, Amy. And I think, of course, the people in the mission are best placed to answer that. But they have shared some of their results uh, in part through um, a case that they submitted for the CLA case competition, but also through conversations and webinars and so on. And I think one of the things that they found was that it helped them institutionalize some CLA practices more fully. Uh, They also mentioned seeing greater resilience at all levels, at the individual level and, and the team level and just overall through the organization around change management, which of course is something that most organizations face, at least periodically. They talked about improvements to their overall learning culture as a result of the Mission of Leaders initiative and a stronger emphasis on openness and uh, inquisitiveness. And then just generally a better overall use of all staff capability in order to achieve outcomes. And this, um, of course, is a really important theme for all of us in in development and in other organizations as well, that when we empower staff and position everybody to be able to lead from where they are, then everybody gets to bring everything they have to to the game, and uh, we're likely to achieve our outcomes more fully and more effectively, and that's what what they found. To actually get anywhere in integrating CLA, it requires an investment of resources and time. And the USAID-Uganda Mission of Leaders program was a pretty significant investment from the mission. But as we heard from Alana about her FEVS research, it is worth it. It does pay dividends, not only in terms of development outcomes, but also in staff empowerment and staff engagement. And I'm interested to hear from the two of you ideas of smaller, more granular initiatives that also create a learning culture that maybe don't require such a big investment of resources, but can go a long way. I'm thinking of exercises that we on the Learn team did in our joint team meetings with Stacy and the CLA team, where we would spend, um, I think we, we met once a month, then we would spend 45 minutes maybe of a meeting examining one of our learning questions of, you know, uh, on the on the team, we s- developed a list of questions to see if the work that we're doing is contributing to A, B, and C, and what kind of effect are we having, and can we map that out? And we would just spend, a conversa- have a conversation with each other of, here are the questions, get into small groups, and kind of talk about that, and share an example of where we've seen that, and then that gets synthesized by our M&E research and learning team and they feed that back to us so that everyone is aware of the work that we collectively are doing because it's hard to keep your eye on the bigger picture um, particularly as teams grow in size when you're focused on so many different tasks because we have a, a broad range of of activities that we're focused on yeah those are great examples you know some of the pretty standard but very solid aspects of building a learning culture like 
in PPL LER, we have um, the Evaluation Book Club that uh, some of my colleagues run. There's also a, another book club in USAID Washington called the Bungie Book Club, and people come together in both of those, in the former, to talk about evaluations uh, and learn about what makes for a good evaluation and so on, uh, and in the latter to learn about um, different aspects of um, work and performance and so on. So, you know, like the standard brown bag is, is not a bad way to get people focused on learning. Another thing that comes to mind for me in terms of processes is a knowledge management tool that we use on our team called Knowledge Drop. It's a internal blog where anyone on the team can post insight that they've gained from something they're working on, whether it's contextual information that others on the team should be aware of, or they've done an analysis of something they're working on and they want to share it. Can I ask you guys a question about the knowledge drop? It seems like such a useful process for you. And I say process because you it's not only a tool. You know, you have a place where you put this, where you capture the knowledge, but you also talk about looking at it and discussing it. So can you talk about how you were able to institute the behavior and the processes of actually going to the knowledge drop, not just to leave something, but to gain something from your colleagues and how you weave what you get there into the rest of your work? Sure. I I can speak to that because I was here when we developed it. So it's housed um, on our wiki, our internal wiki, which is just a Google site. The intention was we need a space that is not someone's inbox to capture information um, of relevant activities and work and discussions that are happening. And because there were a number of us on the team, when we started there were 10 of us, uh, we can't keep track of everyone's you know, thoughts at all times. So if I'm at this event and someone's at another event and someone's at, uh, participating in a team meeting of uh, someone else, we can all come back and share our thoughts there and put them in one place so that it's all captured, so we can kind of internally muse about that. And then it became a great tool when we started growing as a team, because as new people would join, we could say, to catch you up to speed on the context of what we've been working on for so long, just go read the wiki. And you can sign up to have a, um, an alert. It will email you when a new post is published. Um, and you can t- Google has a functionality where you can tag folks in. So I can write a blog of, oh, I was at uh, the town hall with the administrator the other day, and he said this, and it made me think about this. And I can tag you, Stacy, and say, did you have this impression as well, or did you, what did you think? And then we have the whole conversation captured there, so that when we're going to work on something like that um, in the future, we have a record. And our Merle team does comb it for the, their um, monitoring purposes. The, some of our indicators are tied to that. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. That's fantastic. I mean, I I can see how it relates to your institutional memory and knowledge continuity as you bring in new people. It's part of your growing technical evidence base. It becomes a, a place where you also collaborate. It's really interesting. Well, with that, it's time to wrap up this episode. Here's some quick tips for creating a learning culture. To build empathy and understanding within your team or organization, Consider using insights discovery or similar tools, and remember that everyone can be a leader, no matter where they fit within an organization. In addition, don't underestimate the value of simple tools for capturing and sharing learning. And remember that the enabling conditions for CLA, such as openness and continuous learning and improvement, 
also contribute to increases in staff satisfaction and empowerment. For more tools and resources on this subject, visit USAID Learning Lab. The USAID Learning Lab podcast is a production of the USAID Learn Contract, implemented by Dexas Consulting Group and its partner, RTI International, on behalf of USAID's Office of Learning, Evaluation, and Research and the Bureau for Policy, Planning, and Learning. The opinions in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the United States government. Our music is by Pottington Bear.